Hey, everybody, and welcome to a very special Point North one-shot. I'm Alistair Stevens, and let me tell you a story. I have been on the internet now for, oh, these many years, and for many of those years, I have been promising an in-depth discussion of Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Tonight's the night. Chris Kelworth is here in the YouTube chat. Chris has been pestering me for, no kidding, maybe five years, Chris? Has it been that long? It's been a good long while. Anyway, Chris has been pestering me, rightly so, for this long-awaited discussion of Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I cannot wait to get into it. I love this movie. This is legitimately one of my favorite movies ever. And there's so much to discuss. Tonight, lamentably, sadly, we can only scratch the surface of this mysterious and willful movie, but there remains a lot to be said, and it's not at all impossible that I will revisit Scott Pilgrim at some point in the future. I'm so glad to have you all here with me. This is the second consecutive, I guess, Point North one-shot lecture. Yesterday, I discussed the 1988 fantasy film Willow. Tonight, Scott Pilgrim. Great things are coming from Point North, and they are all thanks to you, the listener, the viewer, whoever you are right now. You can support Point North by heading on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia, where your pledge of a dollar a month or whatever you can afford helps me make these things. It helps me take the time to watch these movies and think deep thoughts and compose these, these lectures, these seminar sessions, and then to invite you all here to talk about these films with me. Running these things is not terribly cheap. Those of you who have been on the internet today may have noticed that pointnorthmedia.com is currently down because it's inexplicably popular, you guys, and it costs a lot of money to run a website. So if you can head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia and pledge your support, I would appreciate it. And it will help me do more of these things, particularly these one-shot discussions, which are so absolutely absorbing and engaging. I love this idea of, of tackling a text in an hour, in 90 minutes, and really trying to get to the heart of it in that time. I can't, of course, be comprehensive. I can't, of course, be as thorough as I might otherwise be. But what I can be, I think, is, is deep. I think I can cut deep to the heart of these texts and draw out the things which engage me, and hopefully, therefore, the things which engage you. You can interact with me tonight here in the YouTube chat. I see so many of you here, which is a lovely, wonderful thing. I see Skipa is here, and Bryce is here, and Angela is here, and Elizabeth is here. The aforementioned Chris, here too, as he should be, atop a great throne, like Gideon at the end of the movie. He is atop a, a, a dais. It's the only thing that can possibly accommodate the might of Chris Calworth. You can also find me on Twitter. You can tweet at Point North Media, or you can use the hashtag OneShot, which it turns out is actually more popular than I thought it was yesterday. It was going through a fallow period yesterday when I looked. Today, it has been frantic for OneShot. I'm going to work on those because we're going to have more of these lectures in the future. When writing a story, there are two broad approaches that an author can take. And this is true of the author of an original story or that author by proxy, the adapter of an existing story. The first, and I think this is a, in some ways, righteous instinct, is to make your story as broad as possible, to make it as accessible as possible, to give your readers access points, to allow them to enter voluntarily into your secondary creation, into your fictional world, and to engage therein with the plot and the characters. We want our stories to be open. We want them to, to blossom and to allow that entry. The other way of writing a story is not to go broad, but to go deep. The other way of writing a story is not to care about those people who might otherwise find access to your story difficult, but rather to speak directly to those people who are already in your congregation, as it were. You can preach directly to the choir, 
as it were. If you have seen the 2010 adaptation of Scott Pilgrim, then it will not come as a surprise that it is firmly in the latter camp. This is simultaneously, I think, one of my favorite movies, one of the best crafted films you will ever see in your life, but also weirdly a cult classic. And most cult classics fall into this camp of, of stories which are imperfect, but which are still meritorious, stories which are fascinating in their flaw and in their, their willful complexity, oftentimes. You think of movies like Napoleon Dynamite, for example. You think of movies like Donnie Darko. These are cult classics. And Scott Pilgrim doesn't play like that, because Scott Pilgrim is, is a finely tuned machine. This thing is focused and is intentional. Every frame of this movie is specific in its aspiration and in its reference. The reason that it is a cult classic is simply that its audience is so small, so relatively speaking, small. You get this movie or you don't, and if you don't, it makes no effort to win you over. There is no art of seduction to this film. From the very opening moments of the movie, where we get the 8-bit stylized Universal logo and the old chiptune version of the Universal theme, this is a movie that knows what it is. It knows what it's doing, and it doesn't care if you don't get it, if you don't like it. There is a punk rock sensibility to Scott Pilgrim, in one sense. In the other sense, as I said, this is a finely crafted piece of work. Like all of Edgar Wright's films, there is no incidental detail here that has gone overlooked. The frame is much less naturalistic than it would be in pretty much any other movie you'll ever see. Sometimes you will see, and, and of course, this is part of the cinematographer's art, is to make the frame appear naturalistic, even when, of course, it isn't. If you're spending $100 million on a movie, if you're spending $300 million on a movie, then there is nothing on the frame. There is nothing that appears in the movie that is accidental. There is nothing that is unintentional. But Edgar Wright manages to, to somehow bring that artifice to the foreground and to make it a thing of beauty. This is by no means a naturalistic film. But in that artifice, it finds specificity. It finds glory. It finds an exuberance and a joy, which are, to those of us who get it, and I know that getting a piece of culture is a non, un, is not an unproblematic you know, way of approaching these things, but, but for those of us who get it, this is a movie that is designed to surgically charm us, to precisely and specifically win us over. It, it speaks to us directly and emotionally. It wields the aesthetics and, and the style and the confidence and the swagger of entire swathes of pop culture. And it focuses them to a needle-sharp point, presses it ever so gently right through your skin. My first experience of watching Scott Pilgrim was in a movie theater in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I had already loved the books. I, I should probably preface this a little by saying that Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, the 2000, 2010 movie directed by Edgar Wright, is an adaptation of the six-volume Scott Pilgrim comic book series by Brian Lee O'Malley, the Canadian graphic artist. I say that, that's not strictly true. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is an adaptation of the first five volumes of the six-volume series of the, the Scott Pilgrim comic books, because the sixth volume hadn't yet been released. Edgar Wright, interestingly, was contacted about directing a movie version of Scott Pilgrim six years before, after only the first volume had been produced. And he said, 
No, I'm going to go off and make a little movie called Hot Fuzz, of which you may have heard. Then he returned to Scott Pilgrim. This movie was released in 2010, right before the final volume. And in that final volume, there is a major deviation between the movie and, and the comic book series, the graphic novel series. It's not, strictly speaking, a, a freeform adaptation. The author, Brian Lee O'Malley, was integrally connected to the, adapt to the adaptive process and also to the production of the film. So this is less in its final movements in particular, but also, I think, in its grandest scope. This is less a direct adaptation or less a simple adaptation than it is almost a retelling, almost an, an alternate perspective on these same characters. That gives it some of this fascinating textual crunch. And I have to say that as I was preparing today for this lecture, I realized that there is no way, no way at all that I can talk about the comic books tonight. So instead, what I'm going to do is this. Tonight, we are going to look only at the 2010 movie. And some way down the road, I think I will do a two-part series, probably the first three volumes and then the, the, the back three volumes, looking at the, the comic book series, the graphic novel series in its entirety, because it is unique. It is utterly unique. It is beguiling in a very specific way, in a very non-traditional way. It's, it's pointed, it's specific in its reference. It's remarkably ambitious, and it manages to deliver an ending which, particularly when placed alongside the ending of Scott Pilgrim versus the world, is rich and thoughtful and, and textually sophisticated. And that's not always the case. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. That won't happen soon. That will probably happen in a couple of months, but I'm super into that idea. I may even... I mean, if there's any kind of raucous uproar on Twitter, I may even break it down and do a six-issue uh, six series, a six-episode series, I suppose, looking at each volume in turn. That, that may be what happens. I don't know. Yes. Good. Okay. Um, everybody's buffering. This is a terrible thing. I'm so sorry that you're buffering. These uh, podcasts will be available after the fact. I, I only have so much control over YouTube. You guys have been in touch with Google. I've said, hey, maybe you should let me run this thing. I'd be pretty good. I can, you know... I can do nothing. I have no applicable, uh, no applicable skills in this region at all. I'm terribly sorry that you're buffering. Uh, the video version will be available after the fact. The audio version will also be available after the fact. The audio version of all of these one-shots will be available over on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia for everyone. Even if you are not a patron, you can head over there and get the audio version. That is a temporary solution. Once the website is back and once I am not swamped and overwhelmed with technical demand, then I will be able to put together a podcast feed and there will be some kind of Point North one-shot podcast feed in iTunes where all of these lectures will be released. I say all of these lectures because there are going to be more. I really love this format. So I'm looking forward to doing, uh, to doing a lot more of this in the future. Let me think here. As I scroll back through the YouTube chat, um, yes, Skipa says, I'm not staying because time is wibbly-wobbly, and I, I came for Hobbit, says, too much travel, can't read a calendar. Come back tomorrow, Skipa, for Hobbits. We're going to be talking about Hobbits tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern in the next chapter of There and Back Again. We're approaching the end of that novel. I can't wait to get to it. Yes. Yes. Good. All right. Let me see here. Um, Becca says, I'm still shocked at how many plates this movie spins so successfully. I completely agree. One of the things which astonishes me about this movie, one of the things which, which absolutely delights me about Edgar Wright's work, and this is true, I think, of all of his films, is that nothing is wasted. He can foreground and foreshadow with the lightest touch that I have perhaps ever seen. But everything fits together beautifully. Not a frame is wasted. Not a moment is wasted. It all 
works. It serves the story or the character or sometimes just the aesthetic, but it all works and fits beautifully together. Yes. Aaron says time for a Cornetto seminar series. Don't worry. It is very near the top of the list. I would love to talk about those movies. The Cornetto trilogy, for those of you who may not know, is the Edgar Wright, Nick Frost, Simon Pegg trilogy that starts with Shaun of the Dead, runs through Hot Fuzz, and ends with The World's End, appropriately enough. It's not actually a trilogy, per se. Those three films are disconnected, but they share a common aesthetic, a common sensibility, and they share Edgar Wright's razor-sharp directorial style. So those movies are all fantastic in their way. I would like to talk about all of them. Yes. Yes, good. Um, Gene says, I would love to discuss some of O'Malley's other work too. He does some very lovely stories. Uh, you may not know that I also have a comics book podcast over on commonroomradio.com that I do with the fabulous Sarah Kate Pizant and the equally fabulous Vinton Bain. We've just launched this new show and we're going to alternate between comic book movies and graphic novels. I think that's the plan. Week by week, we're going to switch out. One of the graphic novels that I am desperate to discuss in that show is Brian Lee O'Malley's follow-up to Scott Pilgrim uh, Seconds, which I think is a genuinely sophisticated piece of work. There is so much going on in that book and it it speaks very powerfully and very directly to me. So I, I would love to discuss that. And certainly Life at Sea is, is very strong too. Yeah. Okay. And yet Skeepa says she can't leave. Skeepa, you promised to leave and you stick around. That's sending a mixed signal. That's all I can say. Good. Justin says on Twitter, the first time I saw this, I thought this movie knows exactly what it is. And Justin, I think that is precisely the point. It has a self-awareness, which is completely enviable. Yes. Good. Oh, I should say that the comic book podcast over at Common Room Radio is called Excelsior. You can find it over there. Uh, the intro episode is available now. Next week, we are discussing uh, Logan, the recent uh, culmination, I suppose, of the X-Men series. And the week after that, we are discussing both volumes of the recent Tom King Vision series from Marvel, which is astonishing, you guys. We just recorded that episode. I have just read that comic book. Mind blown. It is fantastic. And we spend a long time talking about it. So definitely head on over to commonroomradio.com and subscribe today to Excelsior. Let's get into the topic at hand then. Let's talk a little more about Scott Pilgrim. I suppose a quick gloss of the story would serve us well at this point. The story is effectively the story of a young slacker in Toronto, Canada, Scott, who falls head over heels very suddenly and perhaps somewhat inauthentically with uh, an American delivery girl. I guess she works for Amazon.ca, Ramona Flowers. She is beguiling. She is mysterious. She is all he wants in the world. He is immediately smitten, but in order to be with her, he has to battle her seven evil exes. And yet, the movie isn't about any of that stuff. The movie isn't about Scott's battles with the evil exes. I mean, it is in a sense, but in a much more powerful sense, it isn't. It is a much quieter story, a much more thoughtful story than it appears to be. And it has that in common with, I think, all of Edgar Wright's work. Shaun of the Dead is a zombie movie, except it isn't really. And Hot Fuzz is a, a buddy cop procedural movie, except it isn't really. And The World's End is an alien invasion movie, except it isn't really. Edgar Wright has a remarkable talent for finding the human truth in these grandiose stories. And that's particularly true, I think, in Scott Pilgrim versus the world. We must begin, if we're going to talk about Scott Pilgrim, with the thing which alienates more audience members than any other. And that is simply the movie's aesthetic. 
it manages to combine from that aforementioned 8-bit opening, the 8-bit universal logo with the chiptune universal theme playing over the top. It manages to unify this fairly standard cinematography, this, this fairly standard movie with aesthetics that are borrowed wholesale from the world of video games, from the world specifically of 8- and 16-bit video games, from video games from the late 1980s and the early 1990s. There are a few exceptions. You can blur those lines a little bit, but pretty much you're looking at like 86 to 88 through to maybe 94 to 96. Those are fertile years for inspiration in the world of Scott Pilgrim. That includes musical cues throughout. It includes the way the characters talk about their personal experience. Even the notion of seven boss battles of ascending difficulty is borrowed straight from video games. Scott levels up. Scott has an extra life. Scott gets coins whenever he defeats an enemy. These are video game tropes. These are prominent features of early video game aesthetics. And in unifying those aesthetics with this otherwise ambitious, certainly sophisticated, certainly competent, certainly, but generally fairly straightforward movie aesthetic, what Edgar Wright has managed to do and what Brian Lee O'Malley managed to do before him in the comic is to create a space that is incredibly inclusive for a very specific audience. Video games have not been around that long. Yes, you can track them back to the 1960s. Yes, you can track their evolution through the 1970s. But particularly in the United States, you're looking at the 1980s as the introduction of video game culture. And even then, more specifically, you can argue the late 1980s. Really, it was the introduction of the Nintendo Entertainment System, oftentimes simply shortened to the Nintendo. That was the portal for most people in the United States to video game entertainment. And that set a tone. It set a certain aesthetic, an aesthetic defined by limited technological capability. But in so doing, we gave an entire generation common reference points. We gave them aesthetic and cultural touchstones that they can use as a shorthand, as all unified communities do. We created essentially a lingua franca for people who grew up from the early 1980s through to the late 1990s. Anyone who is in that generation or anyone who has an interest in that generation has already a shorthand available. We all know what it sounds like when Mario headbutts a question block. We all know what it sounds like when Sonic the Hedgehog collects a ring. We know themes and cues from Final Fantasy. We understand the, the joke about uh, turning into a Metroid ball and rolling into the bathroom that comes from the comic book. There are so many shared reference points here that it becomes its own unique cultural landscape. It has become an aesthetic framework, not simply a collection of bundled aesthetics, but something broader, something grander. There are moments throughout Scott Pilgrim which speak directly to video games, to specific video games. But there are moments in Scott Pilgrim which don't speak to specific video games and yet which still manage to evoke that same sense, that same sense of wonder, of awe, of possibility. And partly that is because of the lo-fi aesthetic. Partly it is because in order to play Final Fantasy I, in order to enter into that fiction, you simply have to buy in. You have to invest your belief because the technological systems available to us at the time were simply not sophisticated enough to render all that we wanted to see, all that we wanted to say, all that we wanted to do. You had voluntarily as the player to buy in. 
and more importantly, perhaps, it speaks to a time when most of us watching this movie were children. It speaks to a time when we were wide-eyed at possibility. It speaks to a time when the world felt new and, crucially, felt as though it could be defined by these, these precise and specific ludic systems. That we could enter into a game world like Final Fantasy and we could understand the leveling process. We could understand, kill a bad guy, get experience points, level up, get new skills, kill bigger bad guys. That's a fairly straightforward system that feels when you are... 10 or 11, completely applicable to your real life experience. We understand that as Mario ventures forth through the Mushroom Kingdom, he is, is developing his skills. We as the player are developing our skills, but Mario too is learning, is becoming better. There is an evolutionary aspect to his adventure. And we have folded that into our own experience. One of the things that video game culture, specifically this eight and 16 bit era video game culture, can do, one of the things that it, it, it forcefully imparts to us is on the one hand that the world is full of wonders and on the other that obstacles can be overcome. Video games are there in part to be beaten, to be completed, to be cleared. So while we can be daunted at the prospect of the fourth world and Super Mario Brothers, we can also rest assured that there is a path to be found. There is, with wide-eyed wonder, a certainty ahead of us. We need only dedicate ourselves. We need only commit. Now, the unification of that aesthetic with this contemporary version of Toronto in both the, the graphic novel series and in the movie is complex. It is challenging. It isn't simply the case that this is video game world. This is not Wreck-It Ralph. This is not some fantastical world where video game elements are quote-unquote real. Rather, this leans toward a very different and, and much more engaging and sophisticated kind of storytelling. What we're doing here is leaning toward magical realism. And in a weird way, we're leaning toward magical realism in its original sense. Magical realism nowadays as the term is commonly used, basically speaks to a kind of low-key fantasy. The frame is the contemporary world, or is, in certain circumstances, the historical world. But it is a naturalistic world which we understand, inserted into that, not defining that, not limiting that, because the frame itself is, generally speaking, still mundane. But inserted into that mundane frame, there are simply magical elements. Spells will work weather can be controlled, cats can talk. These are elements of magical realism. But back in the 1950s, when magical realism was coined as a useful term, it spoke to <clears throat> Spanish language storytelling that didn't just incorporate fantastical elements, but specifically incorporated traditional elements, mythic elements, commonplace elements that would be familiar to anyone who read this particular story, anyone who engaged purposefully with with this particular text. It folded together truth and myth in a fascinating and enriching way. And my argument would be that both Brian Lee O'Malley and Edgar Wright speak to that tradition of magical realism, that this isn't fantastical for the sake of being fantastical, and it certainly isn't fantastical in a generic sense. There are no orcs or goblins or dragons throughout this adventure. Instead, we take these common reference points, we take this, this aesthetic and cultural frame that I discussed earlier, this entire aesthetic and cultural landscape of video games and video game culture, and we fold it into the natural world. And in so doing, we create something that is completely unique, 
we create something the likes of which most readers certainly have never seen. And that very specifically speaks to that audience. As I said, this is not in any way a broad and accessible story. This is a very focused and specific story. And from that focus, from that specificity, it chiefly draws its strength. I am now realizing that I am a long, long way behind the chant here. Uh, yes. Tom is, is, is quoting G.K. Chesterton here. Fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. Yes, and I think that there's something to that. I, 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 this is obviously a very large thought, the kind of thought that I am unprepared to expound upon within the frame of this particular lecture, but I can see an applicability here. I think that video game culture can and, and should and must and does speak to exactly that kind of fairy tale element. I think that there is a unification here. And it isn't just in the shorthand, though certainly the shorthand is relevant to, you cannot, whenever you're discussing a unified community, particularly a unified community that has developed its own specific shorthand, its own specific language, you cannot dismiss the tribes are, are, are cleaved together. Tribes are, are, are unified by that kind of specific shared reference. If you are sitting with a group of nerds and someone makes a, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Mario, but our princess is in another castle joke and you get it, then you are unified with that person through the, uh, the application of common cultural reference. That's powerful and human and true, and it happens all the time. But when we are sitting on the cusp of mass media too, when we are sitting on the cusp of internet culture in particular, then the breadth and the applicability and the, the, the permeability of that culture cannot be overestimated. The power of video game culture to people who grew up playing video games in this specific era cannot be overstated. It is incredibly important. And using that as a means of imparting moral lessons or even as a means of exploring the world and explaining the world, that, that works. With, uh, for example, for example, one of the beats in the movie that people generally quite like is the beat where Scott goes to the bathroom because he has to pee and he has a pee bar above his head like he is a character in The Sims and we see the pee bar drain and then he leaves the bathroom. That is a simple graphical joke. But it is so much more than a simple graphical joke. Because if you have played The Sims, if you are familiar with, with the cultural context of this very specific reference, then you're aware of all of the implications that come with that reference. You're aware of the connotation of that reference. You're aware of the notion that Sims, these, these characters in this, this three-dimensional little house that you control, I say control, what I mean is guide and urge and occasionally punish. These Sims are simply bundles of impulses. They have very simple programming. They don't really want, they need. They don't really understand, they react. And to render Scott for just a second in those terms is so much more than a simple graphical joke. It's so much more than a throwaway gag. It is instead, potentially at least, offering profound insight into the kind of person that Scott is and arguably the kind of person that we all are. For this moment, Scott is obeying nothing more than a rapacious biological need. Is he doing anything but that in the rest of the film? Which characters are following those impulses? Which characters are not? Which characters are finding a greater truth, a greater presence, a greater self-awareness? Scott seems to be governed in that moment by very simple elemental rules, and we don't want him to be. 
I think we don't want him to be, though it is inescapable as you watch the movie. Yes. Yes. Aaron says, I love the intro to the apartment. So quickly laying out that this is Wallace's place and Scott is a moocher. Um, I, I love that. I do love that. It is, it is really rather beautiful. Yes. Yes. Good. The relationship between, uh, between Scott and Wallace is one of my favorite things. Yes. Um, Aaron also says, I think that what really sells Scott Pilgrim as magical realism is the first fight. The fact that you realize no one is impressed or whelmed by the fact that they are fighting. Yes, this is even more expressly, um, this is a point more expressly made, more explicitly made in the comic book. Um, but certainly, yes, as things devolve into magical lunacy and the fact that the audience is still just sitting there, the fact that at the end of that first battle, Sex Bobom wins the Battle of the Bands, that everyone just recovers and moves on and everything is fine. It does suggest that that this is magically realistic. Though, of course, whenever you're talking about Scott Pilgrim, there is an ongoing discussion about how much of this is true, objectively, and how much of this is simply in Scott's head. Is this fight objectively real? Does Wallace see the same fight? Does Knives see the... Well, Knives doesn't see anything, I guess. Does Stephen Stills see this same fight? Or is this filtered through Scott's very specific frame of reference? I've gone back and forth on this, and I'm honestly not sure that there is a worthwhile answer. I don't think that it matters at this point, because if this is just Scott's POV, then it is a POV from which we never deviate. We never get a contrary perspective on Scott's actions, or let me rephrase that, because we get nothing but contrary perspectives on Scott's actions. We never get a contrary perspective on Scott's experience. Everything that happens to him, which is presented to us within the frame of the film as real, might as well be real. If it isn't, anything by that understanding. We don't really gain anything by that interpretation, except that we might speculate about Scott's mental instability. We might speculate about his, his view on the world, his perspective on the world. And that I think is neither terribly interesting nor honestly terribly productive, I think. Um, it is fascinating. And, and of course, we would have to go a long way to explore the actual psychological implications of believing in an extra life, for example, or, or believing in leveling up and exactly what that means. I prefer to read this text literally as a magical realist text. I think that is the most interesting way to read it. But obviously, as is the case with magical realism, I can't completely disprove any allegation that this is happening just inside Scott's hat. Yeah. Yeah. Hope says, speaking of gender issues, were we speaking of gender issues? I'm about to talk about gender issues right now. Good. Uh, let me see here. I'm scrolling back to find, yes. Video game culture, says Hope, meant so innocently here is a phrase that makes me so apprehensive. Yes, I completely agree with you, Hope. I completely understand that. Goodness knows video game culture in the broadest sense, video game, uh, the video game community in the broadest sense can be a hostile and toxic and awful place. But that doesn't invalidate, I think, your personal experience with video games. There is, God knows, an entire generation of women who grew up playing video games just as I did in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, some of whom have persisted, just as I have, in playing video games all the way through to the day, uh, to, the, to the present day. And those experiences are just as true and just as formative as mine or as anyone else's. This idea that girls can't play games, this idea that, that the, the whole notion, the whole notion of the fake geek girl as though 
nerdy interests as though skill and, and, and fascination in any hobby has to be somehow validated by members of that existing community, that is the worst. It is the worst. It is odious and it is repressive and it is unjust and it is so often, so often a cloak for outright misogyny. So hope I completely understand where you're coming from with that. I hope that as I use the phrase, you can accept my very best intent here, where, where I, am, I am leaning toward the more inclusive, the most inclusive and aspirational versions of this community and this culture. That is, yes, a, a very important thing. Absolutely. Um, yes, and Jean says, uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, I have a shared feeling as a woman who has been a lifelong gamer. Yes, I, I, yes, it is tough out there. Good. Good, yes. Yes, and it is worth, as as, um, as Sam points out here, 2010 was a simpler time. I do think that we have seen a complete devolution of the, the, the discourse in this space, um, or at least a partial devolution of the discourse in this space. There are now, I would argue, more, more let me rephrase this or, or phrase this more carefully. There are more, more inclusive and representative voices in this space now than there have ever been, but that hasn't completely drowned out the wailing, the, the dying scream of the dragon, yes. Because Hope says, speaking of gender issues, I like the specificity of seven evil exes in Ramona's frequent correction of Scott's misunderstanding. I am going to talk about that in just a moment because I completely, completely love that. Yes. We're talking a little about unreliable narrators. Yes. Good. Good. And gamification. Gamification, of course, completely endemic to this generation. Gamification, uh, absolutely a, a function of our engagement with video games, with reward loops, with, with the kind of systemic exploration and development that are associated with video games, particularly 8-bit and 16-bit video games, yes. I should say too, if anyone doesn't know this already, I'm not speaking about video game culture as an outsider. I have been a gamer for my entire life. I am a gamer today. I play video games. I love video games. I value video games as a narrative medium. So just to be completely clear in case you're coming to this as your first ever Point North one-shot lecture, this is not me you know, casting aspersions at video game culture. I am celebrating video game culture from within while, yes, acknowledging its, its sticking points, yes. Good. Good. All right. Let's, uh, let's take a look then at the, um, <laughs> I have wondered so far, so far, you guys off of my notes. Um, I did want to talk a little about, um, while we're talking about magical realism, I did want to talk about the unique role that Toronto plays within this movie. And this is true both from the opening page of the graphic novel and from the opening crawl, not really a crawl, opening caption, opening narration that we get from the movie. Toronto occupies this fascinating place. And, and, and in general, I think Canada occupies this fascinating place because here it is presented as something other. It is presented as the non-American America. It is familiar, but different. And that is a perfect space for natural, for, for magical realism, excuse me. That is a perfect frame that we can fill and inhabit with magical realism. The fact that it is familiar enough that we understand all of the basic concepts, all of the basic interactions, all of the basic social dynamics, we can get the sense that this, this could almost be happening in a city in the United States, but it can't because it's Toronto and Toronto is magical. And then even, excuse me, reciprocally within the frame of the text, the, the suggestion that America, that the United States is magical oh, you don't have subspace highways here yet. That's beautifully done because it speaks to this desire that we all have, I think, when we are in this, this 
vulnerable and immature stage of our development to exoticize, to look beyond the horizon. And that needn't be a negative thing. That needn't be a destructive impulse. It can also motivate us to embrace and effect change. So when watching this film, I think it's crucial that we recognize this, this conscious and deliberate othering that is happening here. But uh, even that is a loaded term. I don't, I don't necessarily want to, to mean that as harshly as it might sound. We are, we are rendering magical the mundane, and we are doing so in a very specific and honestly somewhat wry way. That is true, obviously, in the comic book where Brian Lee O'Malley is talking about his personal environment. If you haven't yet read the series of graphic novels, you will find very specific uh, and, and sometimes photographic backdrops used throughout the series to indicate very specific locations. These are real places in Toronto. That's great. That anchors us. It lands us. It connects us. But this is also weird video game fight evil X's world. And unifying those two things only emphasizes, only deepens and, and, and makes more complex that sense of unpredictability, but also that sense of, of the, the, the luminous metaphor that the world is illuminated by the application of these contradictory elements, that by rendering metaphorical the literal and by rendering literal the metaphorical, we can expose the places where those two things intersect. We can explore the boundary conditions between the real and the literal. That's one of the things that setting a story in Toronto can do for you, apparently. Yes. Yes. Um, Chris asks, should we do an Oddwonks meetup in the Toronto area? I could say that there are fabulous Oddwonks all over the Toronto area, and, and I would love to visit. I would love to come up and, uh, and take a tour. Yes, good. I would do, I don't know if there is some kind of Scott Pilgrim downtown tour, but I'd love to do it. Yeah. Tom says that I work in Toronto, so I have a bias against it. Well, this is, this is the exoticization, I suppose, right? That, that Toronto is not different uh, for you. Yeah. Yeah, good. Okay. So I want to move on, and I want to talk about a subject which is um, potentially at least hazardous, a subject which is, is laden with, with potential pitfalls, potential obstacles here, of which we must be mindful. But ultimately, I think it gets us to a very positive place. Basically, what I want to talk about is, is the depiction of women. And I want to talk about that through the lens of the male gaze. I want to talk about the way in which women are represented throughout this movie. And we should be careful to establish first our terms. This is basically the story of a guy who cheats on his girlfriend because he becomes enchanted, overwhelmed, fascinated with this mysterious stranger. He throws himself at her with utter desperation. She is, Ramona I'm talking about, throughout the movie, less a character to Scott, less a person to Scott, than she is a trophy, than she is a symbol. Certainly we acknowledge this early in the film when he's talking to his sister about, about Knives Chow, when he says, she's 17, she's a high schooler, she's Chinese, it's a Catholic school with the uniforms and everything. A symbol to Scott of a more innocent time. She is objectified in his desire. And I should be careful there that with Knives, at least that is not a salacious desire. That is actually a rather touching, innocent desire, but it is a desire nonetheless, and, and Knives is representative of that desire rather than being honored and perceived and seen as a character in her own right. And that's problematic. You know, there are innumerable movies out there where we can look at stories in which a, a goofy slacker guy pursues and gets this girl who is way too good for him 
and 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 triumphs almost uh, against the 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 laws of of natural selection. Here, he manages to get the girl in a way that leaves us very sorry for the girl in question. One of the triumphs of Scott Pilgrim in both forms, but particularly, I think, in the movie, is that we never succumb to the impulse, to, to Scott's impulse to objectify, to neutralize, to sexualize the women in his life. Ramona is hardly ever presented as a sex object. She is presented as attractive, certainly. She is presented as desirable, as she should be. But she is not presented as an object of Scott's desire. He is objectifying her, even as he is trivializing her, even as he is seeking to manipulate her, we are given greater insight into her character. She remains rounded for us. The same, I would say, is true of Knives. The same is true of, of Kim Pine. I think that Kim gets, uh, <laughs> Kim gets a great edit, is what happens here. Even as she's being critical of Scott, and Scott is being wildly, almost brutally dismissive of her, believe that she is more than she appears. She isn't just the punchline. She is, is more complex than that. And that even holds up when we get to Envy, who, as the villain of the piece, quote unquote, the, the, the nominal villain of the piece, at least, even Envy is rendered in much more human terms than we have any right to expect. We are rarely, if ever, leery toward these female characters. We are rarely, if ever, encouraged to view these female characters salaciously, even Roxy Richter is presented in a positive and, and confident and natural light. And, and I say even Roxy Richter because, honestly, on paper, the notion of Ramona's bi phase is pretty terrible. And, and even then, her, her quote, again, bi phase. Ramona's bisexual experiences with Roxy could have been so terrible, you guys. They could have been handled so poorly. And the movie fights back against that with, with every line of dialogue, with every camera angle, with every set piece. Roxy is a, a fully developed character. Ramona is a fully developed character. And the fact that they had a romantic relationship is completely, is, is completely natural. It is, is presented as a completely natural and 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 not in any way outrageous or salacious or exotic or provocative thing. Even as Scott is struggling to deal with it, even as he is trying to assimilate this information, and as always, you know, the audience is 10 steps ahead of where Scott is, but even as Scott is struggling to assimilate this information, we are left in no doubt that this is just a thing that happened. This is just a connection between two people. So even as Scott is reductive, more than a little predatory, more than a little manipulative, more than a little dishonest. The movie never collapses into his POV in quite that way. We are never encouraged to leer at Ramona. Even the scene, the scene which stands out, the scene in which he walks into her bedroom, the first night together, he walks into her bedroom to find her in her bra as she is changing. Her response there, dude, I'm changing is just a completely straightforward response. It, it speaks to her power, her confidence, her security. All of that is great. But okay, at the same time, we have Mary Elizabeth Winstead in her bra and panties for a little while, for, for a short sequence. But even then, in what is the most male gazy scene in the entire movie, we're not encouraged to objectify Ramona. Because right on the heels of that scene, as Ramona and Scott are making out in bed, she simply decides, I've decided I'm not going to have sex with you. And he says, okay. 
and actually kind of leans into it because this is nice for Scott. He's still bouncing back. That's fine. But there was never a suggestion that he would challenge her right to make this decision. And even then, which I love perfectly, there is no suggestion that, that this is in any way casting aspersions on sex and sexuality, that, that Ramona is not being in any way prudish. She's not being ruled by anything other than her own judgment in this moment, because she specifically reserves the right to change her mind about sex later. Ramona is fantastically empowered. And when she isn't, when we see the degree to which she has fallen under the sway of Gideon, when we see from Scott's POV, from an external POV, how she has been literally objectified, literally rendered an object, that is the most villainous act in the entire film. And I can't emphasize, I think, how important, I can't overemphasize how important this is, how unusual this is, and how difficult it must have been, how tempting and easy and straightforward it could have been to make this a much more conventional romance story, to, to reduce Ramona's agency, to reduce her presence, to simplify her character, to flatten her character, and to make her simply a trophy. Scott versus the evil exes, fight. But instead, throughout, she is applying an internal pressure back against the frame of the narrative. She refuses to let the narrative collapse in around her. And that is true too, in a different way and to a lesser extent of Knives Chow. That is true too, in a different way and to a lesser extent of Kim Pine and of the other women in the supporting cast. No one is reduced, which I find extraordinary. It is possible that we can find some evidence of that, that kind of collapse in the movie. I think that the movie's depiction of Wallace is true to the book, but less complex than the book. And is therefore, if you are inclined to view it unfavorably, you can certainly find material to criticize in the depiction of Wallace. The, the rapacious homosexual archetype is exhausted. It is fatigued beyond all endurance at this point. And the idea that Wallace is, is rapacious, is promiscuous, is defined by his sexuality in a way that no other character in the story is defined by their sexuality is potentially at least a little disappointing. I think that there's no real reason why he has to be this way. The only kind of excuse that you get, the only, the only justification for this is that Wallace himself is presented as as an intelligent and active character and seems to inhabit his sexuality voluntarily, that he seems to, God, inhabit his sexuality almost aggressively, that he defines himself in these terms. And thus, the movie's definition of him in these terms is less problematic than it would otherwise be, certainly. Um, yes, yes, Stacy's boyfriend is, is James, I believe his name is, is exactly the problem. Yes, yes, good. Um, let me see here as we scroll back through. Um, gaming psychologist says, I never thought of removing the removing of Ramona's personhood as the worst act in the movie seems obvious in hindsight. Well, I mean, we can get into this in just a few minutes, but that is, um, Scott's a bad guy. You guys, Scott is a terrible person. Scott is immature, which excuses, at least in the, the presence of incipient maturity, excuses a great deal of his actions. But Scott is a bad guy. Scott is not a good boyfriend. Scott has left ruin and heartache behind him. And though he is hurting from the breakup with Envy, he is still objectifying and still using, still manipulating the women around him. His treatment of knives 
is incredibly odious and is as bad, not quite on the same scale, but, but if we contrast these differing standards, I would say that his treatment of knives is almost as bad as Gideon's treatment of Ramona. It's less ambitious, it's less developed, it's less super villainy, but it is still significant. That objectification is very true to Scott's experience too. So when we're talking about evil exes, well, there's a reason that, that Scott is connected with the number zero. There's a reason that throughout the movie, uh, that, that as we get these little numbered clues as to the evil exes, Scott is associated with the number zero. He is the origin point of any number of league of evil exes in the future and will remain so unless he can grow out of it. And we're going to talk about exactly how he grows out of it in just a few minutes. Yes. Is the name Knives Chow a tiny bit racist, says Tom from HR. Um, I would say not in that there's nothing about the depiction of Knives, which is anything other than celebratory. Um, she is not victimized by Scott. That's not quite the right way of saying it. But she is, she is left a victim by Scott. But Knives is extraordinary. And the way that we lean into her Chinese identity, her Chinese-Canadian identity, is I think more proactive than that, is, is more purposeful and deliberate than that. Though certainly I am the last person who should say whether or not that name is racist. So perhaps, <laughs> perhaps other people can, uh, can, can weigh in on that a little more. Yes. Um, good. Oh, what are we talking about here? We're talking about male power fantasies. Oh, the Dresden Files. Yes, the Dresden Files does a lot of good and falters at more than a few hurdles. And certainly misogyny and the depiction of masculinity are two significant hurdles which present problems to the Dresden Files. Yes. Good. Good. Um, let me see here. Toronto is a magical city. Uh, no matter how many times I'm stuck in, uh, no matter how many times I've been through it, the city never really stuck in my head. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. I have never been to Toronto. I have never yet been to Canada, but I will be. Yes. Good. And Aaron says, in Scott and Ramona's makeout scene in her apartment, she is completely the instigator. Even her kissing is dominating. Hmm. I'm not sure that I like the word dominating there because that suggests that we are in some way we are in some way subjugating Scott's own desire. She is she is equally assertive, at least. Uh, possibly even more assertive than Scott. Yes, yes. Um, good. Good. Yes. Good. And of course, we're referencing here the fact, uh, Gene is referencing the fact here that, that Brian Lee O'Malley is half Korean. Yes. So he is writing about uh, writing about being a second generation, I think, for Brian Lee O'Malley, uh, a second generation uh, Canadian immigrant. So he's writing in part about an experience that he can identify with a little bit. There are some question marks over the depiction of Chinese characters in the graphic novel series, which don't arise in the movie. We'll talk about that as we get to it. Yes. Yeah. Good. Canada is lovely says Vivian here, who of course comes from Canada or is at least in Canada. I like that the movie isn't set in anywhere USA. Yes, that specificity is so, so important. Yes. Good. Good. All right. So, um, I wanted to talk, I guess, I guess we should talk about the notion of evil exes then, right? We should talk a, a little about, um, I'm already noticing that time is running away with me and, and I'm probably not going to get to everything that I wanted to discuss. Um, we should talk about evil exes and we should talk about the way that the evil exes are framed, the way that we move through this linear experience in Ramona's life, the way that we account in turn with each of her failed relationships, each of her significant failed relationships, at least. That what we track here is 
a trail of heartache is, or if not heartache, at least a trail of experience with Ramona. And of course, the great power of speculative fiction is that it can make metaphorical a literal truth and make literal a metaphorical truth. And here we have the making literal of the metaphorical truth, because it seems to me that every new relationship is in some way an act of exploration, but also an act of reinvention, that we are renewing ourselves with the beginning of each new relationship. In the hope of a new relationship, we may renew ourselves. And if we are lucky and the relationship is good, that can be a renewal that draws us closer to authenticity. We can set aside the, the hurts and the limitations of the past, and we can move forward into a, into a greater truth. If we are less wise, and if the relationship is less good, then we can move away from that greater truth in our renewal, which is exactly, of course, what Scott does in the course of this film. He represents himself as something to Ramona, which is not true, and is in many ways becoming less true as the movie goes on. This is an act of renewal. This is the act of, of engagement with a new relationship, which is the worst form of that thing. He is becoming someone else. And we've seen that Scott is ruined, that he has been shattered by his breakup with Envy, by she who will not be named. He has sought solace with Knives because specifically Knives is innocent. She is a reminder of a simpler world. He doesn't have to be an adult when he is with Knives. Again, that is not okay. To be completely clear, objectifying someone and using them as a crutch for your emotional needs, super not okay, you guys. But that aside, even then, Scott isn't, isn't genuinely being himself. He's being a part of himself. He's being a fraction of himself. He's being the smallest, most childish part of himself. But he isn't engaging with his adult responsibilities and his adult life. Then Ramona shows up, and she is literally a dream, literally a fantasy figure for him. And he pursues her. He discards knives, not just by dumping her, not just by breaking up with her in the first instance, but by neglecting her. She has fallen out of his thoughts so far. Even when we go to the arcade, when we, we have our, our two beat there in the arcade and they are playing whatever that fantastic Ninja Gaiden version of Dance Dance Revolution is, which I completely adore, by the way, that needs to exist if it doesn't already. When they're playing this, this, this cooperative game, in the first instance, they're completely in sync. It is performative. They are enjoying each other. In the second instance, it is not. It is disastrous because Knives now no longer registers to Scott. She is no longer a full important part of his world. It's her even before he breaks up with her. And again, the movie keeps us right. The movie gives us this profound moral compass because everyone in the movie is telling Scott that he needs to break up with his fake high school girlfriend. Wallace is telling him that and Stacy is telling him that. This is besieging him from all sides. And Scott is weak. Scott is weak. Then, as we move into the Ramona storyline with, with more force and intent, we see him continuing to, to, to fail to live up to his potential, to fail to engage with her really, really honestly. The circumstances which unfold through really the second act of the movie Throughout those events, Scott is almost entirely reactive. He is trying to drive things forward with Ramona, though doing so relatively ineffectually. And the things which assault him are coincidental. The things which assault him are inconvenient. He 
takes Ramona out for a walk because he is stricken with the thought of his own long hair. His own long hair in Scott's head led somehow to the breakup with Envy. They go out for a walk. They end up at the castle where the film is being shot. They run right into Lucas Lee. That second interaction, the second boss battle, the second fight with an evil ex stems entirely from Scott's own insecurity. Even arguably, the battle with Matthew Patel, the opening battle of the piece, Scott receives that email. Dude, this computer claims I have mail. This is, this is an adult responsibility which Scott shirks. He shirks it in the most adolescent, immature way. This is boring. And he deletes it. He himself is not primed for the battle to come. And in a way, the battle to come is therefore entirely his fault. So I talked about identity and I talked about renewal and I talked about revitalization and I talked about redefinition. But of course, it is also true that in a sense, when we enter into a new relationship, we do contend with the evil exes. We do contend with the shadows of those who have been loved in the past. When you enter into a relationship, particularly, of course, an adult relationship, you're well aware of your, your partner's history, of, of the landscape of, of, heart and, uh, of heartache and upset, but also of triumph and joy that lays in their past. And that's the tricky part oftentimes, particularly when you are as immature as Scott is. Sometimes it's easy to look at your partner's past and say, wow, he was awful, he was awful, he was awful. I'm glad you're with me now. But it takes maturity to look at your partner's history and to allow your partner to look at your history and say, he was awful, but there was that really great day. This relationship was actually really good, but just didn't work out. This relationship was perfect and could have worked out if not for this terrible intercession. If not for this random happenstance, I would probably be with this person now and not with you. And that doesn't invalidate the current relationship. It doesn't invalidate where you are or what is happening. Battling the evil exes is a fantastically powerful metaphor. It is eloquent in its simplicity. Even as we, we extend it out into the periphery of the story, even as we force it out of its own frame into other parts of the story, even as we consider Scott as an evil ex, even as we consider what happened to Kim Pine, even if you're reading the, the graphic novels, of course, we go into even more detail. Yes. Aaron is quoting here, Wallace, what's the website for Amazon.ca? I love that joke. You guys, I love that joke. Yeah. Elizabeth says, I'm not okay with Scott Pilgrim beating Captain America business. Not how it happened, y'all. Particularly because he has a stunt team with him is the thing. We should also say, I can't believe I've gone an hour into this already and not said this yet. The cast in this movie, you guys, the cast in this movie is extraordinary. I cannot believe we have so many talented actors doing this thing. I love everyone, everyone in this movie. Yeah. Team Cap forever, says Hope. I think we all agree on that. Yes, yes. Yeah, a gaming psychologist said, in my mind, Scott Pilgrim beats Captain America, which makes him pretty badass. Also, of course, beats, uh, beats uh, Superman. So we're doing pretty well with that. Yes. Good. Yeah. And Tom from HR says, damn it, now I want an Orphan Black podcast. I would love to talk about Orphan Black at some point. That is a great show. Yeah, I'm behind. I may be like a whole season behind, but uh, yes. Good. Good. All right. <laughs> and there's just a love fest happening right here in the YouTube chat. That's the way it should be, you guys. We're gathered here to talk about Scott Pilgrim. So 
the, the literal representation of this metaphor of evil axes, I think, works really rather beautifully, particularly because we are tracking this chronological procession through Ramona's life. So as we're looking at these evil axes, and as she's giving us this, this wonderfully specific and eloquent backstory, we're seeing who Ramona is, too. We see the rebel. We see someone who is desperate for, hmm, attention is perhaps the wrong word, but but a kind of cultural validation. She wants to define herself, and she wants to define herself in part through her relationships. That is obviously something that is, or was, let me stress was, important to Ramona. That's key. It's a very eloquent means of, of exploring her character for us. But ultimately, it draws us back to Scott. Ultimately, it draws us back to our protagonist and the growing realization that he's not a great guy. The growing realization that he has been held back himself, that he has been stunted somehow. And the degree to which we are willing to blame Envy, the degree to which we are willing to to credit Scott's current disposition to heartache, to a tragic breakup, to, well, tragic is perhaps overstating it, but to an unfortunate breakup. I don't know how far we're willing to go down that road. I don't know how much we're willing to to excuse his behavior with this explanation. And more importantly, I'm not sure how much the movie wants us to excuse his behavior with this explanation. There are a few inconsistent details in the film. There are a few ways which indicate Scott's transformation. The first of those is, is one which is almost lampshaded, that Scott drank. Scott drank, apparently, all the time. I think it's Kamo who is the first person in the movie who says, I distinctly remember you being drunk on several occasions. And uh, being drunk on, on gin and tonics, if I recall correctly, which is a wonderfully specific bit of writing. That's just, that's just beautiful. And Scott says, no, I don't drink. This is Coke Zero. This is, this is Scott's new identity as someone who doesn't drink. And it's never quite clear why. But there's also something I think that could be gleaned from the fractured editing of this movie. Scott doesn't seem to have an entirely comprehensible understanding of, of, of the procession of time. He seems to flit from scene to scene in exactly the same way as the movie flits from scene to scene. There are a few points in the film where we cut to a new scene and it feels as though Scott is entering that moment with us. I'm thinking in particular of the, uh, the walk to Julie's party. There's a, a, fraction a fractured sequence of edits right before that, where it seems as though Scott is transitioning those edits with us, that his awareness doesn't exist you know, within the same pinned panel as everyone else in the scene, that he is somehow fractured. He is somehow broken. And I'm not sure what to make of that. Because that would be a powerful piece of evidence to support the argument that Scott has been hurt by his breakup with Envy. But all of the autobiographical evidence that he gives us and all of the biographical evidence that other characters give us suggest that, no, actually, Scott has maybe just always been this way. And I don't know what to make of that. Certainly, there is the argument that Scott is immature is insufficient, that Scott is less a man-child and more simply a child, that he is an innocent who is incapable of dealing with the world as it truly presents itself, which again, potentially speaks to the video game metaphor, potentially speaks to the overlaying of that video game culture aesthetic in order to, to explain and to validate his own personal experience. These arguments are cyclical. There is not a simple solution right at the heart of Scott Pilgrim, I will say that. Yes. Um, Scott is an every boy character, says Aaron, which I'm inclined to agree with. Yes, yes. 
And gaming psychologist says, yeah, and I wanted to mention this earlier, actually. I love the way the, the, the film handles transitions, says gaming, psycho uh, gaming psychologist. Beautiful cinematography. It absolutely is. And it's very easy to look at Scott Pilgrim and to say, oh, it's that video game movie. It's that movie that uses video game tropes and video game aesthetics in order to tell its story. That is anything but true, because the movie is also incredibly literate in cinematography. It is incredibly literate with, with the tropes and the trappings of both films and television. The sequence when Scott returns to the apartment that he shares with Wallace, having secured his date with Ramona, that is underscored by a terrible 80s sitcom laugh track, that's not a video game reference, but it is absolutely a pop culture reference that would be familiar to people who inhabit that milieu. It would be just, just part of the vernacular. It would be an idiomatic piece of, of, of pop cultural ephemera there that we can just fold into our means of expression, fold into the aesthetic of the movie in order to communicate I guess both a joke, you know, it, it is funny in and of itself, but it's also referential and indicative of Scott's emotional state. He is now feeling as though he's inhabiting this, this simpler world where everything is brightly colored and everything's going to turn out for the best at the end of 22 minutes. Huzzah! That's problematic. That's not the experience that he's having, but that is the way that he is narrativizing his experience. Again, we come back to this question, how much of this is real? How much of this is in Scott's mind? That's a little harder to parse as an example. Yes. Good. Let me see here. Mm. Good. And we're talking a little about his, his immaturity here. Yes. Yes. Good. Okay. Yeah. Gene says, as in all of us know a guy who was him at 23 years old. Yes. Or 33 years old or 43 years old or 83 years old. Yes. Good. Um, oh, we're recommending Safety Not Guaranteed. Safety Not Guaranteed would be a fantastic one-shot seminar subject. I will add that to a mythical list somewhere. I will add that to a strictly, and I want to be very clear on this, strictly imaginary list. But if there is an imaginary list, and there isn't, it's imaginary, I will add Safety Not Guaranteed to it. What I mean by that is that at some point, three months from now, someone should tweet at me saying, hey, weren't you going to do a seminar series about, or a, a one-shot about Safety Not Guaranteed? And I will say, hey, yes, I should schedule that. That's a great movie. You should definitely, definitely watch that. Yes. Good. Yes. The, the Aubrey Plaza connection being the one that led us to, uh, led us to safety not guaranteed. Good. Um, Hope says, I think that while we have to be careful about excusing away Scott's grossness, it's interesting how, I'm not sure, unintentional it is, immaturity versus malice, I suppose. That's vitally important. I think that distinction is, is absolutely key because immaturity can be conquered. Immaturity can be overcome. Malice cannot be undone. You can learn and grow and, and be better. You know, you can recover from immaturity in a way that you can't in quite the same way recover from malice. Scott is not cruel. Quite the contrary. Scott would go to apparently any lengths to avoid being cruel. He's just not sufficiently aware of what cruelty is. And that I think is, is a vital and, 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 almost tautological importance. Like that, that is almost, it is the definitive thing about Scott's character that informs so much of his action that it becomes the definitive thing about Scott's character. I think that that, that naivete, that immaturity, yes, however we, we want to pin that, it is vital, it is necessary, it is also transitory, it is also temporary, it is also weirdly excusable. And ultimately, of course, we will get to that point. Let's, let's actually talk about the... Um, Let's actually talk about the climax of the film here because we get two beats at the end of this movie that I really 
like. The first is Scott's gaining of the power of love. Scott levels up and gains the power of love and draws the sword, and it's all awesome, and we are cued by every story that we have ever read and every movie that we have ever seen to expect immediate victory. Scott has the power of love. He is going to go forth and be victorious. And he isn't. What saves Scott, what elevates Scott, what brings Scott final victory is the power of self-respect. And that's really interesting because I think that there is a legitimate criticism of this film that, hey, actually, Scott's not lacking self-respect. He's not lacking self-esteem. He's not lacking, as it is in the comic book, and I think this is a crucial distinction. In the comic book, it is the power of understanding, which I like a lot more. But here, Scott's understanding of himself is revelatory. It is epiphanic. It, it, it allows him to genuinely level up. I mean, it is a transition into something new. It is, a, it is an emotional, a psychological, a, a personal threshold, which is enormously powerful. But crossing that threshold demands self-awareness. That is what Scott earns. That is what unlocks Scott's victory. And it encourages us, I think, to look back through the film, to study those points at which Scott's self-awareness and self-confidence have failed him. And when you do that, when you start tracking, of course, specifically Scott's interactions with Ramona, you see that he is constantly second-guessing her. He never expects her to be where she says that she is going to be. When they arrange for the first date, he's startled that she's there. He says, I thought you were too cool to show up on time. Throughout the movie, he never expects her to follow through because he expects to be hurt, expects to be let down, or arguably, he understands that he is creating this fantasy version of Ramona Flowers, that he is imbuing her with a presence with a, a purpose with qualities which she does not possess because no human being possesses those qualities. Now, ultimately, it turns out that he is wrong about that. Though he has an imperfect understanding of her, it would seem that the understanding he has is at least decent, is at least serviceable. It looks like, actually, it looks like the sketch of Ramona that he holds up at the party so that Kamo can identify her by her hair. Um, but even as we move through, I think we see Scott battling that own, his own sense of, well, insecurity, yes, of, of fragility, yes. I think one of the reasons that he is with Knives at the beginning of the movie is that she is safe, is that she is simple. When he is fishing for compliments from, uh, from the rest of his band uh, after their first rehearsal that, that Knives attends, he keeps circling back to this idea, she seems nice, she seems nice, she seems nice. Nice is what he is looking for because nice is safe. He doesn't want to be challenged. He doesn't want to grow up. He doesn't want new experiences. He wants a comfort blanket. Knives Chow is Scott's binky, effectively. Ramona is not. Ramona is an empowered woman, even though he fails to recognize that. And he needs to raise his game in order to be with her at the end of the movie. It is worth pointing out, of course, as I said right back at the beginning of the lecture, I don't know, five hours ago, that... Um, the movie was, was written and filmed uh, before the last volume of, of the graphic novel series was released. So the endings do deviate. They, they are not completely incompatible, but they are different versions of similar events. And also there are entire elements missing from the movie which are very important in, in the, the graphic novel series. The timeline is also radically compressed, as you would expect. 
when Scott wins Ramona, he is effectively winning himself. This is, this is the lesson that we are given here. You must be yourself. You must level up and draw that sword of, of self-esteem right out of your chest in order to win, in order to save the day. But even then, we're not done. Because Scott has to confront one of the most interesting and, and, and baffling and curious elements in this entire film. And this is still an element that I haven't quite pinned down. Scott has to battle Nega Scott. This is foreshadowed in that Ninja Gaiden Dance Dance Revolution game that we saw earlier. The Nega Ninja, I can never beat that guy. We foreshadow it beautifully. And there are deleted scenes or, or cut scenes, scripted scenes that were supposed to exist that would foreshadow Nega Scott all the way through the movie. And the final beat with Nega Scott, where, where Scott is supposed to fight his shadow self, his evil self, and then they emerge from the club basically friends. They emerge from the club talking about going for brunch. They're just hanging out. It's pretty cool. I still to this day don't know what to make of that. I still to this day don't know if we have faltered, if this is an important thematic idea that is turned into a joke, if this was only ever a joke, or if we're actually trying to do something sophisticated, if we're trying to do something really interesting. Because if Nega Scott is the evil Scott, and he and Scott are identical, that suggests that Scott is neither good nor evil. It suggests that Scott is, in that moment, a neutral character. That he isn't a bad guy, because then presumably his opposite would be a good guy. And he certainly isn't a good guy, because then presumably his opposite would be a bad guy. Instead, they are the same. That Scott has, almost in that moment, unified himself. He has become more whole and more complete. The original version of the movie actually ended with Scott staying with knives, that he was supposed to make it work with knives. Test audiences hated it. I can only imagine. I mean, that's narratively speaking, that is high concept, but flawed. That is a bad idea. That is almost fundamentally breaking the premise of your own narrative there. So instead, we get this ending where Scott and Ramona are going to try. They're going to try to make this work, but they are going to crucially try to make this work as adults. It is vital to understand in your appreciation of this movie that Scott does not win Ramona by battling her evil exes. What he does is win the possibility of Ramona. He wins the chance of Ramona. And that is all you can ever get. When you lay the past to rest, you're not guaranteed a trophy. You're not guaranteed a ticker tape parade. You're guaranteed a chance. If you can fight and you can overcome and you can resolve through self-awareness and self-esteem your own internal issues, then you simply get a shot. That's what Scott gets at the end of the story. And that, I think, is entirely appropriate. That is, and, and speaks very powerfully to that notion of reinvention, that, that idea of continual reinvention, that as each relationship ends and falters, we are changed. But I struggle a bit with this because reinvention sounds inevitably, inherently inauthentic, inherently disingenuous. And I do not mean that. I do not intend that to be the case. What I mean is that by every relationship, we are changed. By every relationship, we are transformed. Some relationships will draw us closer to our true selves, to our fullest selves, and some relationships will draw us away from our true selves, from our fullest selves. And these relationships are complicated because sometimes you don't want what's good for you. Sometimes you don't know what's good for you. But hopefully, the best relationships will make you more yourself, will make you a truer version of yourself. And that, I think, is what I mean by that process of reinvention, that process of, of almost re-identification, of, of reassertion, of, of 
becoming and re-becoming as you emerge and re-enter relationships, particularly when you're in your early 20s and you don't know who you are on your best day. Yeah. Good. All right. Um, Axel Stone says, Nega Scott was the only part of the movie that disappointed me. It's really good in the comic. Yes, we do something very different with Nega Scott in the comic, which works for me too. I, I do agree. Yes. Chris says, like Sparrowhawk from Earthsea, he has integrated his shadow self. Well, okay, Chris, first off, spoilers for the 50-year-old A Wizard of Earthsea novel by Ursula K. Le Guin. Second, good pull, Chris. Good pull. I like it. Yes. Aaron says, and this is certainly one of the explanations, Scott is so passive, even his evil clone is just a schmuck. I don't hate that, Aaron. I'm going to tell you, I don't hate that. Tom is taking off. Tom from HR has already gone by the time I see this. Tom from HR, you are a very fine fellow indeed. I hope that you will catch up with the end of this at some point. Good. Excellent, excellent, excellent. All right. And that, I think, guilty of spoilers, says Chris. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> Good. Um, then I think we'll actually wrap it up for our discussion of Scott Pilgrim. Though, as I say, there are so many things to talk about. I'm well aware that, that in the course of this lecture, I have been talking in very grandiose terms about a movie that is really fun. I have resisted the urge to quote at length entire passages. Don't think that I can't do it. I can super do it. I promise. I will someday for you all. Just quote the entire movie from memory. That's how I do. I haven't talked at all about the music. I haven't talked at all about the integration of that raucous, punky culture with Scott's own in-fiction experience. There are a ton of things that we can talk about when it comes to Scott Pilgrim. I do believe this is an incredibly sophisticated and yeah. ambitious text. But for this high-level gloss of the great themes of Scott Pilgrim, I think this will probably do. But we are not done. There will be at least a two-part series at least a two-part series. Let's just say that. Maybe a three-part series, maybe a six-part series. We'll see how it works out later this year, looking at Brian Lee O'Malley's graphic novel series. We may do that as a part of the Excelsior podcast over at Common Room, or we may do it as, as a more traditional lecture series right here on Point North. That has yet to be decided. We will also, at some point very soon, organize some kind of Scott Pilgrim live tweet. This is a thing that has to happen. Scott Pilgrim is an incredibly live tweetable movie. I think we get as many people together as we possibly can. We will make this thing happen. Stay tuned to Point North for more information on that. That will do it. Chris is listening to Black Sheep in the car, driving home from this chat. Definitely go and listen to Black Sheep. The soundtrack for Scott Pilgrim, you guys, is so good. If you haven't heard it, go fire up Spotify or go fire up YouTube. Come to that and just go listen to the, uh, the entire soundtrack. It is breathtaking breathtaking. I just adore it. All right. That will do it for tonight. I will be back though tomorrow with The Hobbit, the there and back again discussion, continuing our exploration of Tolkien's Middle Earth. That will take place at 9 p.m. Eastern right here on the Point North YouTube page. So I hope that you'll be able to join me for that. It's going to be a really fun discussion this week as we move toward fire and water. We move toward uh, effectively our real transition into the third act of the book and one of the most interesting tonal and textual transitions that you will see basically in any book ever. Certainly the most stark transition that you will see in, in any of Tolkien's writing. It is astonishing as we push from not at home into, into fire and water and we essentially reframe the entire story. Um, 
that is enormously powerful. The 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 shift in tone is will, will give you whiplash. It will send you reeling, and hopefully you will love it as much as I do. I'm talking about that tomorrow night. Then stay tuned because I'm going to be talking about Rogue One. I'm going to be talking about all kinds of things over at Point North. As soon as the website is back up, you'll be able to subscribe to the newsletter. In the meantime, head on over to Twitter or head on over to Facebook. You can find me in both places, Point North Media. And if you have a dollar, if you have five, if you have 10, if you have more, more than $10? Can such a thing be true? Head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. Pledge your support. Help make these one-shots a regular thing. And I should say that if you pledge at the $20 level, which a few of you already have, and I am in discussions with several of you already, if you pledge at the $20 level, you get to pick a topic. You get to pick a topic for one of these one-shot discussions. I will sit for an hour, I will sit for 90 minutes, and talk about whatever it is you want me to talk about. So... That may take some scheduling. If you want me to read, you know, a long novel, if you want me to engage with an entire TV show, there's going to have to be a discussion about my schedule late in 2019. But if it's a one-shot movie, if it's a short novel, if it's a comic book, then we can probably accommodate that pretty soon. Head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. Guys, I appreciate all of your support. Point North is still so very new. It is still so very fresh. This is still launch week, technically. And uh, and I have been awed and 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 humbled and struck, just struck by your incredible generosity, by your incredible support, by everything that has made this one-shot lecture possible, all the one-shot lectures possible, all the podcasts that I do possible. This is my favorite thing in the world, and I get to do it because of you guys, and I'm incredibly grateful. Thank you all so much, so much for joining me tonight. I will talk to you again very soon, I think. Until then, take care.